0: Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 18. We're reading verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt, all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, this is the word of the Lord. All right, guys, I know Florida lost last night. You guys are sleepy today. This is the word of the Lord. I appreciate somebody's enthusiasm back there. We are on the sixth commandment this morning, and so we'll begin in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Where it is very simply stated to us in verse 17, you shall not murder. And as we have done throughout this series, we'll be taking the entire meaning of this commandment from the broad body of scripture, everything that is revealed about what it means for us not to kill and to act in violence. While living in Virginia, I decided to adopt a hobby. My two hobbies at that point were planting a church and tending to small children, and to preserve my own sanity, I needed one other outlet. We lived on a small postage stamp piece of property about a mile behind the Pentagon, and so I decided to learn how to grow grass. It felt manageable, it was a small piece of property, and the yard had been neglected for years. There were azaleas that were all overgrown, knotted together, three bushes that had created one new organism together. as like the Trinity or something. I'm not sure still. It was a mess. And so I plowed the yard and read about fescue, the grass that will grow there in hard Virginia, red clay, and I watered it and watched it grow. I then went back in and patched where the seed had not taken and suddenly had a beautiful yard. It was pride and joy, something I could do manually that didn't talk back. It's wonderful. And then the next fall, I noticed that there was some weed taking over the yard. It was called crabgrass. And uh, it had gone fairly strong. Now, I had researched this, and I had put down this stuff called pre-emergent that was supposed to help you with crabgrass. But here's the trick. I had some very liberal and kind neighbors who were glad to share their crabgrass with me. See, they hadn't gotten on the lawn campaign, and so crabgrass can just travel very quickly, and that's what happened. So it took over my yard. So I go to my local garden store, and I ask them about crabgrass, and they gave me this bottle. They said, attach this to the end of your hose, and then spray it across your yard. How many square feet do you have to cover? told them, they said, this will do it. So off away I went to go rid my yard of Crabgrass attached it to the hose, began spraying. I noticed pretty quickly that I went through the bottle and I'd only done a quarter of the yard. And so I looked at the back of the bottle and there were instructions. You know how they tape them on and it's a little booklet that unfolds and it's very small print. I began reading the fine print and noticed that there was a a little knob underneath the apparatus that you were supposed to turn And then they gave you instructions. You know, if you have a certain type of grass, you adjust the knob to five. If you have fescue, you adjust the knob to one. And I look, and it was on five. (laughs) A couple of days later, all my grass was dead (laughs) in that quarter of the yard that I had sprayed. And it became apparent that you really have to read the fine prints. You couldn't just trust the broad outlines that they give you at the garden center, that you have to pay a lot of very close, meticulous attention to things, or you'll just absolutely make a hash of it. And friends, when it comes to the law of God and the command not to kill, not to murder, we have to read the fine print. Because it's very possible up to this point in the game, when we get to the sixth commandment, to be feeling pretty good about yourself. Jesus met one young man who was like that. We call him the rich young ruler. He said, all these commandments I've kept. And on a certain superficial reading of God's law, we can say something similar. But when we get to this commandment and we read the fine print as to what's involved with not murdering, not killing, not being violent, we are all exposed. Absolutely undone. Leviticus 19 gives us instructions that part of this commandment is that we are not to hate our brother. It's in verse 17. And then Jesus develops that, of course, as to what we read earlier in the service in Matthew 5. That we are not to curse, that we are not to insult, that we are not to hate or we'll be liable to judgment. And suddenly we are undone. Our hearts are exposed and we see that none of us have kept the commandment that we can't. That our sinful disposition just pulls us right into this. That we do insult. That we do hate. That we do struggle with forgiveness. And it's here that we see one of the great functions of the law in our life. That the law serves us as a mirror exposing who we are. And that it reveals all the filth and all the sin and all the dirt within us. And it draws us to one solution. That the only solution possible for us in our cursed state when we see all of our sins and filth is Jesus. And that the law points us there. That we must have Him atoning for us. Him dying in our place, being cursed. Taking on the weight of the law Himself. And this is what Jesus does for us. And then on the other side of that deliverance, the second beautiful side of the law, is that now it functions as a map for us and that it guides us in the way of what it means to love God and neighbor. And so the law serves us with that double-edged sword exposing us and convicting us and also guiding us. And this morning, as those who have been forgiven by God, as those who are redeemed and brought out of the house of Egypt, forgiven for all of our sins and faults and failures, we ask this question of God. What kind of life does this law, not to kill, not to murder, what kind of life does it lead us into? And there are three main angles that we can approach this from in looking, that, looking at all that Scripture says. And the first is this, we respect life. It's apparent in the command that there is a preservation of human life when we are instructed not to murder. This, of course, is built on the broader foundation of what the Bible says about who human beings are. That we've been created in the image of God, Moses tells us in Genesis 1 and verse 27. That God fashioned us. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, an image of a great king was a representation of His authority. And so a great king would commission images to be made of himself and then distributed them around the turf of his dominion. They were representatives of his authority and rule. And that's what we are as human beings. We are images of the living God, representatives of his authority and rule, even in our fallen state, in our sinful corruption. We are images of God assigned with a tremendous dignity. And so when we receive the command not to kill, it's because that image has such great dignity that we are to respect it. And that life is God's gift that He gives to the human being. And to kill another human being is to steal that gift. It is to take it away when it is only God's to take away. When you look at the broader parts of Deuteronomy, As this commandment is developed, you find that there are certain limited situations where life is legitimately taken away from another human being. There are plenty of provisions. But on the whole, most of the law is concerned with protecting that life and keeping it, preserving it. There's one rather humorous example in Exodus chapter 20, or 22, excuse me, where there's a discussion of if you catch someone breaking into your home, If you catch a thief in the night, then you are justified to kill them because you don't know whether they're a threat to your physical life and to your family, and so it's appropriate. But if you catch the thief in daylight, you're not allowed to kill because you know exactly what's going on. And so this is the general direction, the the impetus of the law is to say that no, we protect and preserve life. That that is who we are, that life is God's gracious gift to us, and we respect the image of God that He has stamped on each one of us. When I was a seminary student, Melissa and I had the opportunity to go to East Africa, and we were about 12 miles away from Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, visiting a village there. When we were first pulling into the village, we were looking off to uh, off to the right of the road and Kilimanjaro was there all clouded in. Suddenly the clouds gave way and broke and you could see the entire mountain, which very rarely happens. And so we asked the driver to stop our, our van that was packed with people. I hung out the window to take the picture of this majestic, glorious mountain, all 18,000 feet of it. In front of me was a young African boy standing on the side of the road and he was just in my picture. He stuck out his hand as I'm trying to get it all framed up and he stands there. I'm sitting there frantically telling him to move, you know, slide away. I'm doing the tourist thing. I'm trying to take my picture. You're messing it up, you know. He, of course, wasn't understanding me. I wasn't understanding what he was doing. I didn't get the picture, it clouds back in. I get back in the van and the driver then tells me what was happening. He says, well, many of the kids on the road make money by having their pictures taken. Many tourists want to take their pictures. So he's sticking out his hand thinking you were taking a picture of him. And I thought to myself just how backward my priorities were that day. Here I have the image of God in front of me and I'm trying to shoo him away. Because here's this awesome picture of grandeur and majesty in Mount Kilimanjaro that we would all recognize as such a majestic place. Glorious in all of its beauty. And I was trying to shoo away this little kid. But what the Scripture says is that He is more majestic than any mountain, than any other part of creation. That He was created on the final day as the crown of God's creation. That as God's image, He's stamped. That He carries more dignity and weight and respect than anything else. And friends, that is the trajectory that this command takes us into, is a respect of human life. To recognize the dignity of one another in your neighbor, understanding who each other is. as God's creation. And so this is the first part of the commandment. The second part of the commandment is that we seek the well-being of our neighbor. You see, it's not enough just to simply not harm your neighbor or take their life. This commandment in the book of Deuteronomy is expanded, and it's particularly expanded in chapters 19-22, through verse 8. But you find there a series of statutes and ordinances that are developing the commandment, and so you may find it helpful to turn there. What receives development or several things, but particularly what it means to look out for your neighbor's well-being, for their flourishing, for what it means to build a safe and good community. And so we've taken the clear and decisive turn away from the commandments that are strictly and purely oriented to God, and now we have commandments that are oriented to our neighbor. In 1914, you find good example of this. It says, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark." which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, this is the way it worked for Israel, that the land was divided up by tribes and by families, and there were landmarks put down. And that was to be that family's land that they were to farm and God was to provide for them through. Obviously, there were instances of injustice where someone would move the landmark and the boundary and take advantage of their neighbor. And what did that threaten? an agricultural economy, in a life that was driven by what grew from the soil, it threatened your livelihood. It took unfair advantage of your neighbor to move the landmark. And this was not to preserve your neighbor's life is what God tells us through the book of Deuteronomy that we are invested and interested in the well-being and the financial wholeness of the neighbor, the provision for their lives. And so it's about social justice. It's about mercy. It takes us into a broad region, the law does, into what it means to uphold the the dignity of your neighbor. The final legislation that you find in in chapter 21, or chapter 22, excuse me, verse 8, I wrote that down wrong, excuse me, that's not the right one. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman 's cloak that wasn 't where we were supposed to be. oh well um, <laughs> that's quite embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> I've told you you have to be careful with the law of God. it uh, has all kinds of stuff hidden in there but the uh the the second commandment that is referencing in uh, in deuteronomy as it as it develops this command uh is this notion not only of not endangering your neighbor but we just find this. Comprehensive concern that you are not to hate, that you are not to insult, that you are not to disregard the neighbor. And so, friends, as God's people, this is what we're to look out for. It's not simply not to kill, to take your hands in violence with someone else, but to oversee their overall health. Now, the final piece of the command that receives development in the Bible is that we uproot anger. We can't just avoid killing someone we have to address what leads us to kill. That down in the depths of our hearts, there are fires burning that can lead to murder. And what God is really after is not simply the act, but also the attitude. Turn to Leviticus 19 with me. 19 verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of Him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I and the Lord. And so God is not simply concerned with the act. He's also concerned with the attitude, even in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, takes this trajectory of the command into Matthew 5, and He develops it further. He says, no, if you curse, if you insult, if you hate, you are liable to judgment and you've broken the command of God. John takes this a bit further. John's famous, of course, for 316, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First John 315 is perhaps a little more provocative. Listen carefully to what he says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He takes it just to the point. And he's letting us know that we can't tolerate murder and we can't tolerate hatred inside. It's what leads to those actions, and God is concerned to uproot it. Like the azaleas I mentioned in the front yard, when I began digging in that hard Virginia red clay, I noticed that these roots had been there and they had been growing for 70 years. And someone had ingeniously planted clusters of three. I understand from gardeners that this is what you're supposed to do. But over those 70 years, those plants had grown together. And down in the dirt, there were these roots that were an intertwined mess. I had to dig a three-foot hole to come up under and lift it out because it was just impossible and it had been impossible to grow anything else. Friends, our hearts are like that. And God wants to uproot all that leads to hatred and anger. All that can lead to violence. That this is the direction of where God is going with us. So it's important for us to ask, what does lead to violence? What are the seeds of hatred that grow in our hearts? I think we can address this in three main themes. The first, very practically, is envy. Envy. We want something. God doesn't give it. And so we grow jealous of someone else who has it. We become envious of them. We hate them because they have something that we desire. It's a wonderful story in the book of First Kings in chapter 21 about a na- man named Naboth. He owned a vineyard that was next to the holdings of the king of Israel, Ahab. Ahab wanted Naboth's land. Naboth refused to sell. He didn't want to liquidate his assets. He says, far be it from me to sell my inheritance in the land to you. And so then Ahab's wife learns of this. She concocts false witnesses who then take Naboth to court and he is convicted and killed for a capital crime. And Ahab got his field. It's an extreme version of envy. But that is what goes on. It's that we become sullen and stricken in life and we want something so bad that even if we don't kill, we hate. Because that person stands for something that God has not ultimately given to us. And friends, this is the great difficulty with envy. Envy is deeply related to our own coveting, to our own frustrations and disappointments with God. And it's related to loving something more than we love God Himself. And what we see is that we only break the sixth commandment. That we only murder, we only hate, when we've ultimately loved something more than God. And so when we break the sixth commandment, it's because we've shattered the first. We want something more than we want God Himself. And so we're willing to trample on every one of God's commands to get it. And so this has to be uprooted. It has to be lifted out. It has to be torn out of us, this envy. Second very practical thing that inspires hatred and violence in our hearts is injustice. It's when we feel wronged. When we've been handled we feel justified to be angry. We think it's within our rights. Of course, the Bible does say that there is an anger that is righteous. But we're also warned about anger and we're, I don't think oftentimes the anger that we want to justify is righteous. Especially when dealing with injustice. We feel the sting of what has done and we take that very Personally. And then we want revenge. And injustice can inspire that hatred within us. And what we tend to do is that the offenses of the person against us, they seem to outweigh the sins that we then start to replicate in dealing with the situation. And we think we can justify them. And it doesn't really matter. And God won't take them that seriously. That their wrong against us is so much more severe and profound than our wrong. As a young pastor, I was witness to a situation in which I saw powerful men shield and protect someone who was doing wrong. And I didn't like it. I had personally been impacted by the situation, and it was gut-wrenching. And in the process of watching the person be shielded, I was talking with my mentor. Because every instinct in me that where there's a gene from Robin Hood was ready to act, to make the situation right to overcome evil with evil it's what i was inclined to do and my mentor tim russell he finally asked me he asked me whether i thought god was big enough to handle the situation and he asked me whether i thought that god was perhaps more just than i was i knew the answer was yes theologically speaking. But I knew that practically that was what was on the line. That I did think I was more just than God. That God needed my help in this situation. That I needed to take care of this for Him. That He was falling down on the job. And so it was time for revenge to set in. And I was pointed very quickly to Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That this sense of injustice and my entitlement and my rights needed to be uprooted. Otherwise, I would become a violent man. Hatred in my heart. This has to be taken out. A third very practical piece towards uprooting anger is learning to forgive. That this is hard for us. This is when we've been wronged and someone has apologized and truly and sincerely repented and we hold on to it. We hold on to it because it just has never quite healed or we want to hold it over the person. We were wronged and we want to let them know that and let them live with that. Matthew 18, we find the question asked to Jesus by Peter. He asked him, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Seven times? Peter thought that was somewhat noble. The rabbis had said all you had to do was three. So he had doubled it and added one. For a whole week's worth, you could forgive somebody. Jesus then says, no, I tell you, Peter, and it's a difficult translation, 70 times 7 is to be your forgiveness. This is just pointing to an inordinate number. Seventy times seven, the numbers of perfection multiplying themselves out. He's saying that you are to be gracious. But what's interesting is Jesus is quoting an Old Testament story when He uses this phrase, 70 times seven. You can find this in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, we find the story of Cain's descendants. Cain was, of course, the first murderer. He murdered his brother Abel, and his descendants are increasingly evil and increasingly violent. The last descendant that is mentioned is a man named Lamech. In verse twenty-three of chapter four, he sings a song. He says, "Ada and Zila, his wives, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me." If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. Do you see the endless violence that Lamech pledged himself to? Seventy sevenfold would he repay someone who wronged him. He was ruthless. He was a violent man. He is the last one of the genealogy given to us. He is a murderer. And do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is calling us to be ruthlessly gracious. That just as violent Islamic was, that is how kind and forgiving we are to be. That if He paid back 77-fold, you are to forgive 77-fold. It's the same phrase. And friends, we have to have a surgery done on our hearts to have everything about bitterness and malice and everything that would lead us not to forgive removed torn out pulled out of the hard clay of our hearts that likes to hold on to it that's what has to happen inside of us if we are to keep this command and so we're exposed the weight of the command not to murder it can feel like an incredible burden but we have a friend, and his name is Jesus, and he's borne the burden for all of our failures with this law. He takes it upon himself. All your exposure and shame that comes with your anger, that comes with your envy, that comes with your unrighteous indignation, (laughs) Jesus bears all of that. He freely forgives it through His own sacrifice going under the curse of the law. And then He imparts His Spirit to you. And He gives you His Spirit so that you can then learn to walk in the ways of His law. In a life-giving way. Being fully human. Learning how to respect life. Learning how to look out for the good of your neighbor and to protect his livelihood and well-being. And learning how to have this surgery done that uproots the seeds of violence that live within us extracts them, pulls them out. That's what your God welcomes you into in this command. It's a gracious and good way. Let's walk in it. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that we see all the ways that anger and violence live within us That even if we don't take the life of others in premeditated and cold ways, we regularly do in our thoughts. Forgive us. We ask God that You would set us in a wide, to walk in Your wide and open place where Your law gives us life. That in Your Spirit, You teach us what it is to love and to forgive and not to be envious, not to hate. And may we look after the interest of our neighbor. Loving Him and serving Him. Lead us in that way, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.